0: This morning we continue our study in the book of Mark, and we're in Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 33, and we're going to start off by just reading the passage this morning. If you would stand with me as we read from God's Word, I would appreciate it. Mark chapter 15, verse 33 says this, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi. Eloi lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing us said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary Mary, the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a, lemon, a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So here we are at the end of our study in Mark's gospel. We have one more Sunday, and uh, Brandon is going to be landing this whole series next Sunday. I'm excited for that. We've been working on the message a little bit together, and uh, I always love it to hear Brandon speak. That guy has a sense of humor that I will never have. Uh, but he also is a deep thinker and has a heart that is deeply loves the Lord and and really, honestly, truly loves you. So I, I I hope that you would join us next Sunday. But here we stand together, the message before the last one, and we stand at the foot of the cross. You know, it's not an over it's not being overdramatic to say that the greatest act of evil ever committed in the history of our planet was the categorically unjust murder of Jesus, the sinless Son of God. Nothing else compares. <laughs> you could list off horror after horror, uh, unspeakable act after unspeakable act, and, and nothing would come close because of every person that has ever been wronged there's there's no one as perfect there is no one as holy there is no one as holy uh, unworthy of such a punishment as jesus received from a purely human standpoint those guilty of sending jesus to the cross they are they are the worst of the worst They are the darkest, they are the most despicable, they are the most reprehensible people that have ever lived. There has been, nor will there ever be, a more sinister crime committed. The shame, the public humiliation, the brutal torture inflicted on his body, it was completely undeserved. And yet, and yet, this was God's plan from the very beginning. The prophet Isaiah tells us, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, so that out of the anguish of his his soul, he shall see and be satisfied, and by his knowledge shall shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. On the cross, Jesus stepped up and took the punishment that we deserved. What was the punishment? Was it the mockery of the people? Was it the the wounds that, that inflicted excruciating pain on his body? I think those were part of it. No, They were definitely part of it. But the real punishment was the punishment that God the Father put on him. The real punishment was in the darkness and it's it's what happened in that very darkness that changes everything for us for those who would trust in him here at mark 15:33 it changes everything for some people who probably should have been considered the very last people to have been changed by it out of the darkness the glory of the savior testifies it testifies to unlikely converts. Verse 33 tells us this. Let's get into this. It tells us the sixth hour, when the sixth hour had come. Now, judging by the way that the Jews kept time, the time started at 6 a.m. So by the sixth hour, we're at noon now. We're at noon. And we know from from last week, we know that Jesus was crucified at nine, so then we're three hours into the cross, three hours into the crucifixion. It says this, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, during the first three hours, some very, very significant things happened. Jesus managed at least to get out three different things that he, that he said, Onlookers looked at him. Luke 23 34 tells us he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As unjust as this murder was, he seems focused on on one thing, doesn't he? He's up there on the cross, and his focus is on one thing. It's not himself, it's not how terribly wronged he had been, it's not self pity. It's not even a, you know a last desperate cry my followers they will avenge me no we don't see that no his mind is centered on those who are are below and his desire is that their guilt would not be counted against them. Isn't this incredible? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Of course he knew that the very thing that he was up there doing was what would make their forgiveness possible. That's the first thing he said. Second thing, second recorded saying of Jesus is to one of the criminals that hung beside him. And in response to the criminal's plea, he says, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. To the man who had nothing to offer, to the man who was in the process of having everything that he had left taken away from him, Jesus makes him a promise. He could have said, hey man, you know, uh, you you get what you deserve. You reap what you you sow. At least least you're up here and, and you deserve this. He doesn't say that. Once again, Jesus' mind is on what his death meant for the people around him. Finally, he looks down, he sees his mother, and he sees the disciple whom he loved. He sees John. And he says, Woman, behold your son. And to John, he says, Behold your mother. The implication is he's telling John, Take care of her after I am gone. As he hung there in agony on the cross, his mind is not on himself, but on those who needed him. And then the lights go out. A solar eclipse. No. One scholar points out that solar eclipses only happen during the new moon. Passover is always celebrated at full moon. This is Passover, not a solar eclipse. Maybe it was Satan who brought the darkness, the prince of darkness, bringing the darkness. No. Job 9.7 tells us that it is God who commands the sun and the stars. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form the light. And create the darkness. God says in Ezekiel 42.7, When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. At noon, noon, the lights go out. Who brought the darkness? It's God who brings the darkness. and Some might say, well, what's up with that? I thought the Bible said that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And it's true. When you look at the Old Testament time and time again, you see the sign of God's presence is often dazzling light. Micah 7, 8 says, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness... The Lord will be light to me. God's presence is often associated with light. But there are times when the Bible makes it clear that he comes in darkness. And when he is described as coming in darkness, that often means he's coming in judgment. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. That's Joel 2. Amos 5.20 says, Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, the gloom with no brightness in it? The day of the Lord is the day where he comes to judge. And that's exactly what's happening here in Mark 15, when the lights go out. It wasn't that God wasn't there. It wasn't that God went and said, uh, you know, this is too much for me. I'll see you later. See you on the other side. No, it's not that. One pastor put it, his holy, terrifying presence was there. When darkness came, justice came. And it was being poured out with all of the intensity and ferocity that sin deserves. But the object of that judgment was not the people who deserved it. It was Jesus. The one who willingly took the guilt of our sin upon himself and suffered for it in our place. We've read it over and over again. We've got to read it again here. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Mark 15, 34 tells us, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. What does he cry out? He says, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Three hours after the darkness had set in, from noon, now we're at three o'clock, three more hours, a total of six hours, Jesus is on the cross, and he cries out, experiencing the full displeasure of God the Father. And for the first time, experiencing what it's like to be cut off from the perfect, loving relationship that he shared as the second person in the Trinity for forever. He's experienced that separation, and it moves him to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, it wasn't in that moment that he he was no longer God. He didn't cease to be God in that moment. Who he was down at his core, that hadn't changed. In his being, he was still that second member of the Trinity that he had always been. But this was the point, when the horror of being at relational odds with the Father was fully realized. Notice that for the first time, he refers to God the Father, he refers to Him simply as God. You and I know how terrible it is to experience that that being at odds with the people that we care about the most. Mm. When the relationship has been violated, and trust, and love, and harmony has been broken, it feels like betrayal, it feels like horror. It feels like you're, you're, you're almost dying on the inside, doesn't it? Well, Hollywood has done a, a pretty good job of trying to help us experience that as we watch characters suffer on the screen, and they have all these little tricks to make us feel it more, right? And so they turn up the soundtrack, and the lighting goes a certain way so that we feel feel the intensity of the pain on the screen, and yet the result is nothing compared to experiencing it firsthand, right? We get a whiff of what it's like. It stirs something on the inside, and maybe it even brings tears to our eyes, and yet it's not the same. In the same way, the pain that we have experienced in our own lives, I think it's just a tiny taste of the intensity, of the absolute devastation Jesus experienced here on the cross. The mockery, the physical torment, abject horror of being forsaken by his Father. This was the cross. In the darkness, there was judgment. Darkness represents a lot of different things, doesn't it? Here it represents judgment, sometimes it represents evil, sometimes it's it's just not being able to see. When it's dark, the world around us, it's, it's hard to make out. The trees, the rocks, the people, different objects that are around us, they don't go away, they're still there, but our perception of them is limited, and our awareness of them, our ability to clearly see them, that's hindered. It's in the dark that it's not hard to mistake one thing for another. (laughs) That's one of the reasons that children, they wake up in the middle of the night and they see a shadow, they see an object that's darkened in the corner and they're scared because they don't know what it is. They think, maybe, maybe, monster, could be. But it's also the reason that we sometimes wander off in the wrong direction, isn't it? You ever played Marco Polo? If you're playing it correctly, your eyes are closed and you're listening. You're listening to the ripples in the water as the different players are moving around trying to evade you. And you, one makes a, a more rash move and you hear it and you charge for them hoping that you're going to tag them. But you're mistaken. The Bible tells us that people have been walking in darkness. Ever since they walked away from their creator they've been wandering, searching for something. Searching for answers, really. And they know that something isn't Right? We look around us and we experience all sorts of different things, and things aren't the way they seem to they should be. There's problems all around, and so they're looking for solutions. They're just not sure where to find them. Mark 15, 35 says, Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling to Elijah. Now, people had been looking, they had been watching, they had been waiting for a sign that their Messiah was going to come, the one who would would free them from oppression, who would restore Israel to greatness. When is he coming? Where is he coming? What are the signs that we should look for? Malachi 4, 5 led them to believe that the return of the prophet Elijah or someone like him would be that sign. Behold... I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Maybe Jesus is calling for Elijah. Maybe someone jokingly said, maybe, maybe he's hoping the day of the Lord will come and, and Elijah is going to rescue him off of the cross. Talk about being in the dark. These people didn't even realize that Elijah had already come and that their Messiah was now hanging there right before them. Verse 36 says, Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Now, sour wine, that doesn't sound really good to us. It's like something we would throw away, something we would give someone that we didn't really like. But John tells us there was a jar of this sour wine there. And it's likely, a lot of commentators believe, that this jar was just the the soldiers' uh, beverage. It was just their refreshment as they guarded the cross, four guards per cross. Someone sops up the wine with a sponge, puts it on a stick, and offers it to Jesus. You know, I don't think this was part of the mockery. I think this was a, a motivation to keep Jesus talking. After he had been up there for so many hours, his mouth must have been incredibly dry, losing all the blood that he lost. Not, not dr- I get thirsty just not drinking for a little while. He's up there for hours, suffering. And I think they said, let's give him some wine, let's keep him talking, because maybe, just maybe, Elijah is going to come. You think? Maybe. This is going to be really cool. Possibly. You know, there are those who look at Jesus with interest. He's a, he's a curiosity to them. And so they read up on him, and they, they watch the documentaries. Maybe they even go to church, but to them, Jesus is, is nothing more than, than a curiosity. They don't see him for who he really is. They don't look to him for what he came to offer. This person didn't look at Jesus hanging on the cross as his Savior. This person just wanted to keep him alive a little longer to see if Elijah would show up to his rescue. In the dark, there were people staring the light of the world in the face and couldn't even see it. And these people aren't alone, are they? Today, people all around us, wandering, searching, in the dark. They know they've got problems. They, they look at the world. They see pain. They see suffering. They see poverty, broken relationships. They see people depressed, people unsatisfied with themselves, unsatisfied with their, their bodies, their personalities, their abilities, their relationships. They see disease, they see death, and they want solutions. And in the darkness, they look for their Elijah of sorts. They're looking for answers. What's it going to be? A new drug? A new procedure? A new uh, natural remedy? A new scientific discovery, maybe. Maybe it's a new technology. Maybe it's some new legislation or, or a new leader, a new perspective, new stimulus check, a new awakening. Opens the eyes of everyone to finally see what, the, what y- they see. Maybe we can all get on the same page and, and believe what I believe. Do you have an Elijah that you're looking for? Here in verse 36, I think we have one of the saddest characters in history in view. A person who is as close to the answer as they could possibly be. They even offer Jesus a drink. (laughs) That close. And yet they're completely in the dark. And we don't know if the light ever came on for that person. But it did for a few of those who were there. Some of the most unlikely. Verse 39 tells us there was a centurion. He most likely was the man in charge of the soldiers who were stationed there to keep away people from interfering with the execution that was taking place. This was a man who would have been present during Jesus' arrest, quite possibly. This was a man who more than likely escorted Jesus over to the residence of the high priest so that he could be questioned. He could have witnessed Jesus' time before Pilate and the interactions that they had. It's extremely likely he was among those who witnessed Jesus being flogged. Remember, there were about 600 soldiers in that courtyard witnessing Jesus being flogged. Being a commander, it would have been his soldiers that nailed Jesus to the cross his soldiers that were tearing up the clothing, that were casting the lots. He had no reason to feel sympathy for Jesus. He wasn't a Jew. He he hadn't been looking for the Messiah. On the contrary, his tribe was determined to keep the Jews under their thumb. The idea of a Jewish savior, that would have been very unwelcome to his kind. And yet there he was. What did he say? He saw in this way That Jesus breathed his last and he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There he was, standing, watching Jesus suffer, listening to his words, witnessing the baffling darkness. Then as Jesus breathed his last, we read from the other Gospels that there was a violent earthquake and he experiences that under his feet. And he was awestruck. For him, life was all about, most likely it was all about moving up in the ranks. It was about oppressing his superiors. It was about furthering the glory of Rome. Salvation to him, well, it would have looked something like earning enough to retire on, or it would have been taking care of his family, or it would have been settling down on a nice piece of his own land for some long-deserved, long-overdue R&R. And yet here, in the darkness of Calvary, his eyes are opened wide to the one who offered the salvation that he didn't even know that he needed. Truly, this man was the Son of God. Out of the darkness, the glory of the Savior testified to some of the most unlikely converts. He wasn't the only one. We mentioned last week the criminal hanging next to Jesus on the cross. What did salvation look like for that man? Well, maybe salvation looked like for him, some, you know, even though it was probably the last thing that he thought was possible, maybe miraculously, somehow, some way, uh, someone's going to say, no, 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 this is all wrong. Let's bring him down. Let's get him to a doctor. Let's, let's help him. Let's release him, just like we released Barabbas. It was all a big mistake. Well, sal- that would have been salvation, wouldn't it? Or maybe he was a realist, and maybe salvation was just like, let's get this over with. The pain, the agony, the suffering. Come on, soldier, just break my leg so I can't breathe anymore. Let's end this. Sweet death, please come. Back when he was running free, salvation may have meant pulling off a a big job. Maybe it was a long con. Maybe that's what he wanted to accomplish. Some other underhanded way of making a big fortune. Maybe he was an insurrectionist just like Barabbas. Maybe salvation was about causing chaos. Maybe it was disrupting the system, eventually overthrowing the Romans. Maybe he dreamed of a better, brighter day, free of oppression, full of liberty and opportunity. To him, Jesus must have been a joke. Looking over, he must have thought Jesus was a fool for not joining in the cause and helping with the resistance. Jesus, all you did, you walked around, you talked to all sorts of people, you did these incredible miracles, everyone believed in you, everyone thought you were the one that was going to change everything, and you did nothing. You let them arrest you. Come on. Some Messiah Jesus was, and yet, somehow, some way, in the darkness... This criminal came to see Jesus for who he truly was. Maybe it was through the supernatural events, the darkness, the earthquake. Maybe it was just by listening to the few words that Jesus managed to get out, the compassion and the forgiveness that Jesus shared. Whatever it was it led him to acknowledge Jesus as the Savior, and he calls out, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Out of the darkness, another unlikely convert. There were others. Verse 40 says, There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James uh, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Other than John, the Gospels tells us it was women that were there. They were the ones who followed Jesus all the way through the horror of his death. While the others had fled, the women remained faithful at his side. This is incredible. You know, Contrary to the thinking of the culture, they were the strong ones. They were the ones who stayed the course. They were the ones who bravely watched the horror that he endured. Next week, we'll discover that that even though they weren't even allowed to testify in court, they would be the ones who would be given the privilege of discovering the empty tomb. And they would be commissioned to be the first people to go out and to share this good news. In the darkness, they were the unlikely loyal followers. Finally, there was a, a member of the council. Verse 43 says, Joseph of Arimathea, A respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage, went to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. He learned from the centurion that he was dead. He granted the corpse to Joseph, and Joseph bought a linen shroud, And taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, rolled a stone against the entrance Of the tomb. Joseph was a member of the council. That very same council that ferociously pursued and tried and convicted and demanded the death of Jesus. He was surrounded by and served alongside dark hearted men, men who, out of lust for power and privilege and prestige, they looked at Jesus as their enemy. For them, salvation was all about getting Jesus out of the way. They had a good thing going there, holding on to it with everything that they had, even if that meant bending the rules a little and actively seeking to destroy a man who had never done anyone any harm. That was their number one priority. And yet, out of the darkness... Joseph of Arimathea goes out of his way, musters up the courage to approach Pilate. He risks exposing himself to all the rest of his council's members as someone who actually knew, loved, and believed in Jesus, and he requests that he be given permission to take the body and bury it respectfully. Luke tells us that he was a good and righteous man, a man who had not gone along with the efforts to convict and condemn Jesus. Really? You mean it's possible that God can change the heart of someone who finds himself or herself working side by side with some of the most corrupt, the most despicable people in existence? What of the darkness, the glory of the Savior testified to an unlikely convert? For millennia, for millennia, the world has been in weary need. Stepping away from its creator to go its own way, well, that resulted in confusion and frustration and consternation and depression and isolation and contention and aggression, and attrition, and malnutrition, and deprivation, and infection, and death. Ever since the beginning, we've been actively searching for solutions. We've actively searching for some type of salvation from the problems that we have. What's it going to be? Is it going to be that new drug? Is it going to be a scientific discovery? Is it going to be a procedure? We've been down that road, right? But the real problem with humanity was symbolically woven into a curtain. A veil that stood some, some, some 80 feet tall as a witness to the separation that existed between humanity and their creator. They were made to be in perfect relationship with him. No veil, no blockage, no nothing in between just like Jesus had experienced that perfect relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit from eternity past, but their sin had placed an impenetrable barrier between them. And that same separation that Jesus experienced as he took their sin upon himself at the cross, that's all we've ever known. But unlike us, he was able to do something about it. No matter how hard we tried, no matter how many good things we tried to do to make up for all the things that stood in the way of us and God, there was no tearing away of that curtain. It couldn't be done. We could barely open a bag of chips. <laughs> but as Jesus surrendered his last breath, he says, It is finished father into your hands i commit my spirit and we read that the temple the curtain that was there was torn the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom mark 15:38 says not bottom to top This wasn't something that could be done with human hands. The tearing of the curtain from top to bottom testifies that that out of darkness, the glorious Savior ripped apart the barrier that kept us from our Maker. Have you seen the Savior for for who He truly is? Maybe you consider yourself to be one of the most unlikely of converts. Maybe you're the last person in the world who would acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior. Maybe you've been been fighting against him, trying to come up with ways to convince everyone else what a sham this Jesus is. But let me tell you this, that there is no one so unlikely that the glory of of Jesus, and a saving work that He accomplished cannot be embraced. Maybe you've been looking for all sorts of other things to bring you, you peace, or to give you significance, or to alleviate your pain, or the danger, or take away loneliness. We've really experienced loneliness lately. Something that would bring you joy, but right now, the darkness is lifting And perhaps for the first time, you're seeing how all along Jesus is the answer to what you truly need. Would you look to him? Would you trust him? Would you embrace the forgiveness that only he can offer and begin today a new life of hope and peace and joy? Quietly in your hearts say, Lord, I need you. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I deserved everything that you took upon yourself at the cross, but you took it in my place. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for saving me. I confess you as my Lord and Savior from this day forward. Some of us have already seen the glory of the Savior in the darkness, haven't we? Are you continuing to draw near to Him, to rely on Him? to walk in the forgiveness and the freedom that he has given. It's very easy to look at the failures that we experience in life and allow them to blind our eyes to the reality of the gospel. And sometimes we're even suckered into thinking that we have failed in such a big way, or maybe so often that a new curtain of separation has been raised. We allow ourselves to feel distant and isolated From the God we were saved to know. Have you experienced that? I've experienced that. Never forget that through Jesus, the curtain has been torn once and for all, it's gone. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 10.19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest, great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Christian, if you have found yourself once again wandering in darkness, feeling isolated, feeling lonely, feeling unworthy, feeling unacceptable. Let today be the day that your eyes turn back to your Savior. Out of your darkness, see the glory of the Savior who bore your shame and once and for all put an end to the sin that separated you from your Maker. If you are in Christ Jesus, you stand clean and forgiven, robed in his dazzling righteousness and glory. Hold fast to hope, the hope that you first had in Jesus, and draw near with unwavering assurance. Out of the darkness, the glory of the Savior testifies to unlikely converts. Are you an unlikely convert? As I look at myself, that's what I see. Out of darkness, may we see the brilliant light of our Savior march steadily, confidently, courageously, joyfully on toward Him. Father, we love You and we thank You There's no emotion that we could express that would rightly express what we should be feeling toward you. Lord, all all we we can do is thank you for, for allowing us to walk through this passage. The most significant moment in history as you gave your life for us. Lord, we are in awe of you. We stand here The only reason we can stand is because of you. We can enter into your presence and sing as we will in just a moment. Sing to God our Father in full assurance of faith with no condemnation, with no guilt. All of that was placed on Christ. We do it because of Jesus. We thank you. We love you. Lord, I pray your blessing upon these people who day in and day out hear messages that are trying to sway them, trying to convince them to look for hope and look for salvation in other sources. Remind them of Jesus Christ, their one and only true hope. Remind them of who they are in Christ. Remind them of their future in Christ. And empower them, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit to live in such a way that brings glory to you and good to others. Lord, enable them to share the hope that they have in Jesus Christ, to speak truth and to speak it in love and sincerity and to serve you with everything that they've got. We love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.